Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you? Hey, Ryan. How you been? I've been good. It's been a little while. Yeah, I just got back from vacation. Okay, that's enough of that for sure. Our guest today is Aaron Anderson-Whiting, co-founder and former executive director and current board member, Parallel 45 Theater, and chief philanthropy officer, Impact 100 Global. Welcome, Aaron. How are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm thrilled to be here. You know, you don't, it's not like I get asked for interviews all the time. This is an exciting moment. But this is your fifth Zoom interaction (laughs) of the day. (laughs) It is. You know, we now just live in a little box (laughs) on on the laptop screen. And that's where our lives happen. And then you you look away from that screen and um, you almost don't know what to do with yourself. Like, I can't see myself True. at all times in an even tinier box. So you've had a long-standing tie to the arts um, and this area, starting with your time at Interlochen, as we talked about, where you pursued creative writing. Did this particular artistic pursuit come naturally to you or were you nudged in this direction some way? Writing was natural. That's what I always did. I was writing little short stories in elementary school. I love to read. I love to write. I had always done it. And even though I grew up here, I didn't really know about Interlochen or what it offered. I knew it a little as like a music camp in the summer, but I really knew nothing about the Arts Academy. And I was a student at Elk Rapids public schools. And it was actually, I have my best friend to thank for it because she made the decision that she was going to apply to Interlochen. And I, of course, like any good, you know, codependent peer pressured, you know, 14 year old said, well, my best friend is going, I want to do it too. So I also applied in a very different time when Interlochen, you could board there and get a couple of scholarships and, you know, regular people could kind of do that. Sure. And so (laughs) it was the nineties, a simpler time. What years were you there? Did you go to the summer camp? I actually never did. I never went to camp because in the nineties camp did not have a writing program. You could only do that at the high school, at the Academy. They do now, but they didn't then. So I started high school there in 93, 93 to 96. Oh man. You know, I was there too. Glory days. I was there in 94 and 95, except- Really? Yep, except I went to the dish room in, <laughs> in, in Stone. So, it was my first job. My summer job was wash, which, washing dishes. In Stone Cafeteria, Lock yep. Haven? Yes. Yeah, there are three cafeterias on that campus in the summer because of the thousands of kids, and it's like a machine. They serve something insane, like 7,000 meals a day. Wow. Um, and, and Mark, so you had to, to deal you with that. for cleaning all those gross trays. <laughs> wow. So that's uh, an example of positive peer pressure, which is great. <laughs> it 
it was. It really was. It forced me to follow my dream. And you've been giving back to the community and helping entertain it almost from the start of your professional career. Were you always, we kind of touched on this before we started, but were you always certain this could be a sustainable career in the face of, you know, just a general push towards traditional corporate America? Um, well, no, not at first. In fact, I had really very little experience with the nonprofit sector at all. I got out of college and continued to, I stayed in New York for a couple of years. I worked for a a publishing company, made $26,000 a year working in Manhattan, lived in Queens, had four roommates. Oh Lord. (laughs) Yeah. This was 2000. So that's very little money. It was little money even, you know, then, but that's what you're supposed to do in your twenties, right? Right. Have a bunch of roommates and not have any money and take the train for an hour. Loved it, but eventually came back to Northern Michigan. I really did miss it. Mostly I missed being outdoors, being outside, um, having a place to go do that. So when I came back, I took a job uh, as a writer, a communications job at the regional land conservancy. I took the job for the writing, you know, wherever it was. But then I ended up falling in love (laughs) with the work of this amazing environmental and conservation organization. So it was a a total like eye opener to me. Not where I thought you were going. You you, you, when I ended up falling in love, I thought a person was going to follow that. But an organization or an idea. Yeah, no, this was just like falling in love with this idea that there could be a mission out there that a whole bunch of people could come together to like serve for the greater good. And the mission was not, let's see how much money we can make, but like, let's try to do this thing to make our community better. Right. And so I really fell in love with the world of not-for-profit work, which now is being, people are are moving away from that term, I guess, because it's, one misleading, you hope you make a profit. Sure. You're not trying to lose money. It's just what you do with it. So now people are saying the for purpose sector. You know, typically I don't like dramatic shifts in nomenclature that change the way you look at things, but I like that. I think that's great. And on that note, a very interesting element to your professional experience is having been involved in charitable gift management in at least two organizations. Mm-hmm. So, what can you tell our listeners about what? that entails and maybe share something that may be surprising for them to know about what it takes to manage charitable gifts for an organization. This is a job that I had no idea existed at all until I started at the Regional Land Conservancy. I did not know that people made a living asking other people for money (laughs) (laughs) that weren't selling something. (laughs) <laughs> to be clear, sure, I had no idea this was a, a career path. And I just happened to be there at a time when they were starting a capital campaign, this really incredible campaign to save over 6,000 acres of like amazing land down in Benzie and Manistee counties. And they needed more people. And they said, you know, are you interested in this work? And if you are, we'll train you. And that was sort of the beginning of my career in philanthropy. Because then I went on from there to Interlochen. I went back to my alma mater and worked in the fundraising department there as well. And then, of course, that's what I did at Parallel 45 Theater, too. As the ED of a small nonprofit, you end up fundraising. Right. You can't, you can't help yourself. But as a job, what's so fascinating about it is you end up forming these really 
close, meaningful relationships with the people who support the work of the organization. Because when you're working in philanthropy, you're talking to people about two of really the most sensitive subjects there are, their money and their deepest values. What is worth it? I mean, it has to be a pretty deep value for somebody to give money away, nothing in return other than you could argue a tax deduction, but you're talking to people about really intimate things. So you end up forming these really close relationships. And the beauty of it is you're dealing with really generous people. You know, you're talking to people who believe they have more than they need and would like to give it away but and you give have it back. To, you have to find those people. They're not just probably finding you. Now, occasionally you get the dream, which is like somebody you know who actually reaches out to you and says they would like to make a gift. But no, you have to do the work. You have to find the people that are passionate about your mission and have the resources to give. And you have to thread that needle of how them making a gift is going to help transform something that needs changing or needs safeguarding. Right. And you handle, and this isn't just locally, I think it's important for listeners to know that you need to solicit from all over the country, maybe even all over the world or not necessarily. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. At the Conservancy, certainly it was national in large part because we're such a seasonal region. So, so many people that want to protect this place don't live here year round. Right. So you have to go to where they are. Interlochen is an international organization. Absolutely. My work there was all on the West Coast of the U.S. We were broken up regionally. So right. it was like the best. It was the very <laughs> best of territories. I mean, from September to May, so never in summer, I was gone about 10 days every five weeks to... San Diego, LA, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. Wow. Oh, and once a year, Hawaii. It was (laughs) really great. So you may ask, why would one leave such a large, well-resourced nonprofit with such a great territory? Why would one ever leave that job? Well, because (laughs) who wants to do that that's so relatively simple And straightforward and easy when they could try to convince their local community that what they really need is a professional, somewhat avant-garde theater. (laughs) Does that sound easier? Well, and that's funny because Parallel 45 has been operating since 2010. Yeah. And you've drawn in performers from all over the world. Is it difficult to create and sustain a thriving theater and music experience and organization in an area like ours that quite frankly isn't totally known for the arts and is maybe known more for, let's say, why November 15th is important. <laughs> that's right. my birthday, by the way. So oh. that's, you know, I aside from Mark's birthday, the other thing, but is it hard, you know, to try to proliferate that in an area that's maybe not outside known for the arts? Yes and no. What is difficult is when you don't already have like multiple professional arts organizations and we do have quite a few really great ones but when you're you know when you're not chicago let's say sure there's like 30 professional theater companies there's sort of a already like a culture and an industry just in that city when you don't have that your first step is just explaining to people what it is you're trying to do and why they should care and why they should come just like, well, we've been fine without this so far. Why do we need right. it now? 
Yeah. So that's the challenge is sort of convincing people it's worth a try to buy a ticket. The flip side of it really is that one, there's not a ton of competition. That's a good point. (laughs) So that makes it slightly easier. But also we live in an incredible place and it turns out that inviting people to come to Northern Michigan for a gig is once they've been here and seen it, they always want to come back. Right. So the place kind of sells itself. Yeah. Because they could like go to Sandusky, Ohio. No offense to Sandusky, Ohio, but, or they could come to Traverse City for two months in the summer. Right. Well, and thinking about what you do and what you've done currently, is it hard to turn it off, the fundraising? Can you be in a social situation and just (laughs) kind of not do it? Does your brain work that way? I can tape my mouth shut and not ask someone for money, but my brain is always working in the sense of what are the connections here that we might be able to make that are going to help everyone. Like I'm always trying to think of something that's mutually beneficial too. You don't get very far if after a while people start thinking of you as just a taker. You know? Yeah, right. Like, oh, she's always asking for something and she's always wants favors or she always wants money or something. <laughs> so my brain is always kind of like trying to figure out like what do we have to offer that might be able to help them, you know, in exchange and how can we leverage our two strengths to like be that rising tide that lifts all the boats. But it's hard to turn it off. Don't get me wrong. As soon as somebody says they went to see a play or something in New York or Chicago, I'm like, oh, they like theater? And you can't help yourself. Right. But if you're naturally a leader, you're going to always be looking for connections where people might not see things connecting in that way and how it might benefit someone other than yourself and take yourself even out of it. Yeah, that's right. Oftentimes... I'll find a way to connect two people. It's not going to turn anything really around for Parallel 45 or wherever I'm working, but it's just, I know these two people are going to be able to help each other with something they're working on or are going to have a lot in common, a lot of interests. And you just connect dots where you can and connect people. And then it's really fun to see what happens. That's incredible. So the artist communities were hit very hard by the pandemic, but Many venues, musicians, comedians, artists, magicians were able to pivot using technology. Did you do the same? And how in general do you feel as an artist and and an artist supporter? How do you feel about sharing live entertainment online? We really struggled with this at Parallel 45 because theater is not film. Sure. I mean, there's a reason people go and sit in a room or sit under a tent to watch something live, like to look not only performers in the eye, because you can maybe say you could look somebody in the eye on you know your TV, but to also look at other audience, right? To like share a moment in time with another audience member. So losing that takes away a lot of the atmosphere of theater. So when we thought about what we might want to do in the virtual realm, we wanted to be really intentional about it. And a lot of theaters have done amazing things. I mean, Steppenwolf's had an incredible program all through the pandemic. To do it well, it does take a surprising amount of technology. Yeah, a lot of cameras. <laughs> because if you just have one camera, 
and maybe some not great mics. It's incredibly boring. I don't care how good the actors are or how good the material is. Like a dad filming a high school play yeah. on his Yeah, camcorder. it just looks amateur hour no matter what you do. So you have to sort of have the ability, the technology, everything to make that work. Which, you know, in the National Theater, they've opened up their archives. And that's great. We're too small to have that. So we didn't want to do it just for the sake of doing it and have it not play to our strengths. So we did a very small summer season last year of new work that was made for the online platform because we said we don't have the technology to take work that's supposed to be seen on stage and try to turn it into something. What we did is we worked with partners. The Traverse City Dance Project is an incredible organization locally. They actually kind of do what we do. They bring professional dancers from all over the world to Traverse City to perform. We worked with them and we commissioned a piece in support of the Black Lives Matter movement that was like a new piece of choreography and meant to be filmed and shown online. Wow. So we worked with that. We did a new play by a playwright from Pittsburgh and we did it as a staged reading. So everybody understood that it wasn't supposed to be sure. a play that you're just, you're hearing new work. Then we took one of our very favorite shows that we had done and it was a last uh, two falls ago, we did something called the Alphabet Experience, and we turned that into something we called Deja Zoom, and it was an interactive <laughs> Zoom experience for the audience. And then we finished it up with a playwright named Larissa Fasthorse, who's incredible. She just won a MacArthur Genius Grant this year. She is the first Native American playwright to ever be in the top 10 produced plays in the U.S., which is a crime that it's taken this long, but she's the first one. And she wrote this play called The Thanksgiving Play. So we produced that as a stage reading in partnership with the National Writers Series in an effort saying, what can we do in this moment that will work that also promotes our values? And one of those is more artists of color having their voices heard. So that was something we did in the fall. So those were like the four online things we did. Just again, trying to be intentional. What can we do? that speaks to our values and that our audience honestly might want to watch. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, parallel 45 on the website, it states, and this really, you know, resonated with me with play, joy, and intellectual rigor. We attack the notion that there is one correct way to look at the world. That's a beautiful, but bold statement. What do you mean? Often, not always, often, People go to the theater and they see the same story they've seen 10, 15 times done, maybe with slightly different costumes, but from the same point of view. The story is being told through the same lens with the same hero, the same villain every time. And we feel that if people are going to spend their time sitting their butt in the seat, and they're going to put their money down for a ticket, there needs to be a reason why they're there. And it can't just be, oh, I thought I would go see the Music Man for the 15th time that was just like every other time I saw the Music Man. Because again, if you want to see something the same way every single time with the same point of view, you can watch a movie. But if you're going to see live theater, at a certain point, you just have to say, aren't there different stories to be told? Or isn't there another way to tell this one that might flip the script a bit? 
one example is many people are familiar with the play Streetcar Named Desire. Mm-hmm. Tennessee Williams classic. You had to read it in high school. You went to see it. You've seen the movie with Marlon Brando. And it's a wonderful play. But almost every single production I've ever seen of it plays Blanche Dubois as a crazy, <laughs> delusional, kind of a joke. You feel a little sorry for her. There's some pity yeah, there. You're right. And so we wanted to do Streetcar, but we started with the premise of what if we erased this notion that Blanche was crazy? And we started to ask, why is she this way? Perhaps all the circumstances that we are told in the script about her past, it makes perfect sense why she's this way. But that's never developed in the point of view of the story. Right. You know, she's been through so much. She's been through severe trauma. And she kind of just gets played off as a crazy person who doesn't have any agency over her life or doesn't understand what's happening. So we wanted to change that. And part of the way you change it, you don't change the words of the play because we would never do that Tennessee Williams estate. (laughs) (laughs) Never. But what you can do is through the director's choices, their directorial point of view, the way you deal with costumes, the way you do light, the way you do the set, you can see that story through a different lens and turn it on its head a little bit and maybe say something different about women who've been through trauma and the way society treats them and how we treat them when they come out the other side. That's incredible because to your point, it's the subtleties. Like you said, the direction, the lighting, the cues, the beats. That was back when Brando actually learned his lines in movies, I think. (laughs) Not like the days of Don Juan DeMarco, where he just sort of like ad-libbed mumbling. Or just had somebody in his ear, had him on cue cards. But that leads me, I mean, one of your core values is reinvention. And you talked about why it's important to create new interpretations of classic stories. Had you ever faced dissent from those who hold these things sacred and think they shouldn't (laughs) be touched, like you can't do this? Yeah, for sure. There is certainly a facet of purists who would like these plays to be museum pieces. And they do have value as a product of their time. We're not saying they don't. We're not saying that there's not a lot you can learn from why this play was written when it was written. In fact, you can learn so much about a time period by looking at the art you know, that's created then and what the social mores are and some of the deep core beliefs. So we're not saying there's not value in that. It's just that there are plenty of theaters doing time capsules. We're more interested in saying, how do we take those stories that are interesting, nuanced material and make them a bit more relevant for today's audience? Like, How can we use that structure to remind people of what's happening today? Sure. And I think that from a sales standpoint, that is a great way to get the traditional grumpy dad who doesn't like the theater to, hey, you know, it's a different version. Like, I don't know how you'd reimagine, you know, Little Shop of Horrors. Would you look at Audrey 2 and think, right. like, how do we make Audrey 2 the... <laughs> well, the certain, an- certain plays definitely lend themselves more, <laughs> more than others to the reimagine because you always have to ask why, too. We don't want to be like oh, we just want to do it differently for the sake of it, you know, just to mess with things. Because that does kind of piss people off. Because they're like, if you're going to flip the script on me, give me a good reason and I'll go with you. Take care of me as an audience member. Uh, Like when I went to see Bromeo and Juliet. 
Oh, <laughs> the bash up. <laughs> yeah. <we're... laughs> I also think it's as a Chicagoan because that's where I'm from. I love oh, yeah? that you worked with Too Much Light makes the baby go blind. Which yeah, is the this Futurist. Little teeny, at least back in the day, small sixty sketches in an hour. Each yeah. one minute, unbelievable. That's really cool. Yeah, they're amazing. The neo-futurists are improvisationalists and they work in this micro theater, really. You know, they do these two-minute plays that are like complete stories in that time. And they have this long-running tradition. Too much light makes the baby go blind. It's the longest running show in Chicago. Is it really? Continuously running show. And it's a midnight tradition. People line up around the block you oh, know, sure. to get in. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to be one of the few theaters that was given the right to do that in 2014. That's impressive. So I'm going to shift a little bit into mm-hmm. Impact 100 Global. Sure. And to those who don't know, and they should because it's really remarkable, can you kind of share how Impact 100 and Impact 100 Global actually works. Yeah, this is good because it's a new position for me so I can practice my pitch, my spiel. <laughs> See how well I have it down without looking at notes. Impact 100 is a pretty simple idea that has really big results, really big consequences. And it was founded 20 years ago. This is the 20th year it has existed. And it's a giving model that really was created because its founder, Wendy Steele, came to the conclusion that not enough women were participating in philanthropy. And so she kind of did like an audit. Like she sort of asked everyone she knew who seemed like caring, generous people and who had means. She was like, so why don't you give? Like, why are you not involved in philanthropy or charity? And she got all these different answers. And she was asking women specifically. And the answer she got ranged from, you know, I'm super busy with my family. I just don't have time. I can't like go to a club or a meeting or whatever. Other people just said, I don't know enough about it. I'm sort of feel intimidated or like, I'll feel stupid. Everyone will know things more than me. I'm too busy with my career, whatever. So she wanted to create a model that basically any woman could participate in, in however deep a way she wanted to or not. So the idea is you get a minimum of 100 women. Each woman gives a thousand dollar gift. All those gifts are pooled so that you have a minimum of $100,000 to give away. Local nonprofits apply in five categories, and they're super broad so that basically any nonprofit would fit into one. It's like arts and culture, environment and recreation, education, family, health and wellness, right? Like takes care of it all. So nonprofits apply. Each category, there's a grant review process, you know, like a foundation would review And then you end up with the finalists. And at the annual meeting, every woman gets one vote. So everyone's vote is the same. Nobody gets more votes because they have more money. You know, everyone gets one vote. And the grants are given away to those who have the most support. If you have more than 100 women, like once you get to the next level of 100,000, you can give two grants away. You can give three. So these chapters, the first one was in Cincinnati. But now there are Impact 100 chapters all over the country and several internationally. There's one in Traverse City. Traverse City broke the record for the most members at the start of a chapter of any city. I think it was was 352, somewhere around there. Unbelievable. Which meant they could give away 
hundred thousand and change, and you just split it grants their first year. Incredible. So yeah, they're all over the country. There are seven chapters in Australia. There's one in New Zealand. There's one in London. And just this last year, even during COVID, nine new chapters came online. So now there's 63. And there were 51 communities that reached out and said, we want to start our own chapter. So almost as many as already exist want to start one. So and that's amongst the time where you think that would absolutely not be happening. You're seeing growth in a giving space. Exactly. I think it was a kind of a shock to everyone. And I think part of it was people really wanted to feel like they had some agency to do something good. Everyone felt super right. helpless and like, I'm just sitting at home, not being productive or doing anything. And all this terrible stuff is happening. So to give people a way to say, well, we're going to have to meet virtually and do these things virtually, but we can still do a lot of good. And there's so much need. Incredible. And people responded. So the global part, Impact 100 Global, is the nonprofit kind of umbrella that's over all the chapters worldwide. And we provide resources to all the chapters, you know, training, website help, design. Getting these up and running takes a lot of work because each chapter needs to have their own board, all their own committees, their finance committee, their grant review. I mean, it's an incredible endeavor. Right. So global provides support and resources and training. We also run a conference every two years. We do an international conference for women who are part of chapters from everywhere, a different city every time. It's kind of like a combination between a how-to, like really logistical stuff for the chapters and like TED Talks and aspirational, inspirational things. So it's kind of like both those things together. So I am the chief philanthropy officer at the global level. So what I am doing is raising money to continue this impact 100 model at a let's scale this thing. If there's this much interest with just what's been happening, imagine if we had a few more resources, little infrastructure, Right. the ROI on this is amazing that you can put in just a few thousand dollars to help a chapter get going. And they're going to be giving away hundreds of thousands. And at the end of 2021, the cumulative giving from Impact 100 over its 20 years will be $100 million. Wow. Wow. So imagine yeah. if we could double that. So what I'm trying to do is raise money to respond to all these chapters who have interest to make more with the goal of let's get into the billions. Let's grow this even more. That's incredible. In the face of so much cynicism and people who just don't think giving is possible, it's great for people to hear that there's increases in these. Maybe at times people have the moments to stop and think and say, what should I be doing? So a shutdown or a quarantine helps people reflect a little bit and can support organizations like this. And, you know, you have these two organizations have very prolific boards and they're made up of a lot of unique individuals with a lot of varied backgrounds. How important is having a varied board to the success of organizations like yours? Very, very, very important. I mean, as a founder of Parallel 45, I can speak to the early days when we didn't have it and how difficult it was. In our early days in 2010, we were just getting started. You know, you just beg your friends and nobody has time. And and then over time, you start to draw in people who have skill sets that you need, talents, perspectives, life experience. 
And the goal, a lot of people think, oh, to be a successful board or to be on a board, you just have to give a lot of money. I mean, I'll never say no if someone wants to give a lot of money, but I certainly don't think of that as the driving criteria for board membership. And in fact, that could come with a lot of problems on its own. If you only look for board members who are going to give a lot of money because you can end up giving too strong of a voice to people just because they've written a large check. And you always want to be respectful and mindful that the people doing the real work, the staff of these organizations are the experts. Like they're the ones who've lived it, know it, been trained in it. So you want to make sure that the board is there at the high level to like, make sure the finances are good, make sure you're all legally compliant, nobody's doing anything wrong, and then to be your champions. So the first question is, is this person passionate? Do they get so excited about what we do? They want to go out in the community and tell all their friends and say that they should support it and bring their friends to shows and get their friends to join impact chapters. They have to have that innate enthusiasm And then, you know, you look at different skill sets like, well, we really don't have anyone on the board, let's say, who's, you know, a finance person. And while we have a great bookkeeper who we employ to do all the things, you might want someone who can take a long view, help you vision in a different way with the finance mind, you know, so you look for that. If they want to make a nice gift, sure, all board members (laughs) should give, but they should give in proportion to what's comfortable for them. And again, Mm -hmm. that goes to that idea of nonprofit, it's still a business. It still has to run like one, sometimes even more efficiently with more scrutiny. Yeah, that's true. Because you are affecting others in a positive way, which I think is really unique and has, in general, with Impact 100, Parallel 45, the lack of in-person events that you probably did fundraisers and things like that, has that impacted you negatively at all or have you been able to pivot? We were extraordinarily lucky at Parallel 45 that our supporters and audience rallied and made it clear they didn't want us to disappear. They were so excited that we had finally gotten our new space at the Civic Center Park in Traverse City, that we were (laughs) we had this festival model up and running. Like they didn't want to see COVID take us down. And so people really stepped up in giving. And, and we did our very best to connect with people like, well, let's go for a walk at the commons, you know, where we could right. be distanced and still talk and lots of Zooms. It's harder when you're building new relationships. You know, those old ones where you have something to go on, to base it on, you can kind of keep going in a virtual world. But it's really hard to meet someone for the first time virtually right? because yeah. you miss yeah. all the nuance that you get from in-person stuff. Yeah. Are they wearing pants? Right. This <laughs> you don't is know. The, or are they wearing the same pants they've been wearing the last <laughs> five days? <laughs> yeah. These are the questions that we all ask ourselves. Like, right. they showered? We don't know. It's incredible to see that, again, a community starts with what you're doing in a lot of places that just need to be found in supporting nonprofits. So I have a maybe an insider question for you as kind of a wrap-up, but as co-owner for almost 10 years of Mr. Music Disc Jockey Services, can you finally tell our listeners why inexplicably a terrible song like Sweet Caroline is played at every single wedding? And oh, I can tell you this. I can. 
because multiple, multiple, multiple people love that song. And how is it that you properly dance to White Snakes? Here I go again. <laughs> it doesn't matter because if you're doing your job right as a DJ, everyone is probably so inebriated by the point you play that in the night <laughs> that nobody will recall, or they'll just think you're a master <laughs> at that. But what you're hitting on here is something very important, which is that the things that we all think universally terrible, nobody could possibly like that. There are a surprising number of people who feel it's not a wedding if you have not heard Sweet Caroline. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's shocking. It's really shocking. And then you have to weigh like, well, I've gotten three requests for this from family members who are the ones who paid me. So I guess I have to do what they ask. But you definitely hold it back till requested. Okay, at least there's that. And the sincerity and the seriousness with which you address that question is really humbling to me. But we talked about <laughs> uh, websites, Parallel45.org and Impact100Global.org. Now, I think it's important to share with the listeners, how can they, aside from volunteering or applying for board membership, how can regular people support your organizations? What are the best ways to go about supporting you? I would say for Parallel 45, come this summer. We're actually having a season. Come to a show. So because we have an outdoor venue, we can be safe. We have to reconfigure our seating for a lot more distance between folks. But we are doing a full season. So just come and check us out. Be in the audience. Let us have the experience again of doing the thing we do. Yeah. And come on a beautiful Northern Michigan night, bring a picnic, there'll be a bar, there'll be food trucks, you can bring your food in and see some great shows and you can buy tickets on the website. So I would say, give us a try. Even if you think you don't like theater, even if you're like, oh, this is usually lame and I'm dragged or I only go if my kids are in a school play, just try it. And then if you don't like it, it's fine. But it's like the no thank you bite for kids. You said food trucks and alcohol and i mean that's usually a good starter for anything so yeah you you had ryan at food <laughs> but that's uh, parallel45.org and i'm glad that you said that you're having a summer season i was kind of teeing that up for you and i'm glad you announced that yeah we hope we see a lot of people there we can only have roughly probably a hundred people due to the space and you know things could change things change every day but sure. right now with how many people you can have in a space Probably about a hundred people in each audience. So and get what's, tickets. What's like the first show this uh, this summer? What's the first show? So what we do is something called rotating rep. We hire one company of actors, directors, designers, and technicians, and they do all the shows. So the shows toggle. So you can go like a Thursday night, and you're going to see Sound of Music, which again, classic story. Come and see it done in a new way. Don't worry, we won't mess with the music you love. <laughs> So that's one night. The next day, we're doing Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, which if you've uh, never seen this show, it's great. I find it totally lovely. It's like super existential, like the peanuts, you know, are existential they are. and funny and adults, I think, like it as much as kids. So those two are going to rotate. You can just pick your day. There's a calendar on the website and you'll see the same actors playing super different roles. And then at the end of July, we're having a one day play reading festival, which I'm so excited about. We are bringing in three relatively young in their career playwrights who are incredible playwrights of color, 
whose voices are getting out there. They're really hot in the industry. Their plays would probably not make it to Northern Michigan in any other way. And they're new. And we have gotten rights from them to do these as staged readings one day only. Wow. So July 31, you buy a pass. You can see all three in one day, or you can just see one or two. And you're going to hear some work that's going to blow you away. And these playwrights will be known in like five years. And you'll be like, that plays on Broadway now. And I totally saw it in Traverse City. You were behind the velvet rope. You got insider info. And supporting Impact100Global.org. And supporting Impact100. I would say wherever you live, see if you have an Impact chapter. And they're always doing a million events. You don't have to commit. Just go to an event. Right now, they're, of course, virtual. But just learn more about it. Ask questions. Meet the people. See if you like what you see. And think about joining. And I would say you will probably be shocked at the diversity of people in these chapters. It's not just like, oh, well, I can't join that because I'm not a rich old woman who wears pearls. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) There are people (laughs) like you in the chapter and it's that diversity that makes it fun. You meet all kinds of people and they have one thing in common. They want their community to be better. They're like, I have a little more than I need. So I would like to give it back. Incredible. Hey, Ryan. Did I ever tell you how I met Aaron? Aaron, do you remember? Was it at Golden Fowler? Yeah, so so my gym (laughs) had a silly uh, challenge, as gyms do. And part of it, I had to find a stranger (laughs) and challenge them to a wall sit. I don't know if you know what that's like, but you basically like sit down on nothing but with your back against the wall. Yeah. Until your your thighs are on fire. Okay. And Child and Family (laughs) Services has a fundraising party at Golden Fowler's. It's a furniture store here in Traverse City. It's an awesome party. If you can imagine, everywhere you turn is another living room. It's a very cool event. They call it the Celebrity Dream Room. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Your sister-in-law was actually doing one, who is a, a friend of mine. And so I went around looking for somebody and somebody brought Aaron to me. And she was brave <laughs> it was enough. Like, it was probably Crystal. She like she'll do a wall sit with a stranger, and I probably couldn't <laughs> do it now because you know a year of COVID. I've been afraid to go to the gym. Yeah. I don't think I could withstand. <laughs> I'd last about like five seconds. Oh, you were you were a trooper. We had a long conversation sitting there like that <laughs> while we were sitting. It was distracting yeah. me for the fact yeah. that I was about to collapse. It's impressive. My thighs are burning. Currently listening to the harrowing <laughs> tale. <laughs> really good how we met story it really is That's like one well, of the better. a wall sit challenge well aaron th- this has been awesome thank you so much for your pursuits and to all those who pursue along with you sharing art and entertainment with the community and helping nonprofits in need and to our listeners thank you all for listening and for pursuing the positive thank you so much aaron thank you so much for having me and there you have it Our Zoom conversation with Aaron Anderson Whiting from Impact 100 and Parallel 45. For more information, parallel45.org. Summer 2021 season tickets on sale. The season lasts July 8th through August 1st. See The Sound of Music, Your Good Man Charlie Brown, the P45 Play Reading Series, and Ugly, a new pop musical. We also want to give a shout out to our supporters, the Tin Lid Hat Company. That's tinlidco.com. Use promo code The Pursuit Of for a 40% discount to our listeners. And for other production and podcasting inquiries, check us out at newleonard.com.